1: In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com.
0: Hey, San Francisco, we want to get back to our city by the bay.
1: (laughs) So we are this January. That's right, man. We're going back to Sketchfest. It's become an annual deal for us there at the Castro Theater. Always some of the best audiences of the year. Uh, you are our peeps, and we love coming to see you. So get your tickets to see us at the Castro. Uh, what day are we there?
0: We're going to be there Saturday, January
1: 18th. That's right, for a primetime show.
0: Yep, so uh, go to sysklive.com and follow the links to get information and tickets. We'll see you guys in January.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How
0: Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. There's Jerry right there, just laughing it up. Yeah. And this is Stuff You Should Know, the Jokes or Jerry edition.
1: (laughs) Dense Science edition, a.k.a. Chuck Die Slowly Inside edition.
0: Dude, no, it's not. You're going to do just fine. This is all so intuitive, it's wonderful.
1: I'm not worried about not doing fine, but thanks for the reassurance. Sure. (laughs)
0: Well then I'm I'm really excited about this if you know that I think you're gonna do fine. You are going to as well. I'm going to see to it. I think Jerry's gonna do great. Jerry, how how are you doing over there? Okay. She's pressing buttons like I've never seen her press buttons. <laughs> Stop doing that. <laughs> um I wonder what kind of weird sound effects just happened after touching all those buttons. Don't <laughs> you mm-hmm. Jerry just laughed. I don't know if the mic picked that up. All she's, right, everybody's she's... like, okay. You're officially stalling now. Jerry's a quiet laugher, though. You ever notice that? It's all nose. Yeah, she's all nose.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is Jerry laughing hard. There's some serious serious ASMR triggering going on right now. Yeah, that's
0: right. And there's a little bit of snot on the microphone cover.
1: All right. Carbon-14 dating. It works, sort of.
0: The end. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's not the worst description of it ever. Yeah. We can do better than that, though. Yes.
1: And luckily, uh, you did a great job with this, but I also, you know, my advice to anyone, if you don't understand a science thing and you're an adult, Mm -hmm. just don't worry about what anyone behind you thinks. Just looking at your laptop and you go to the most rudimentary children's science website you can find. Yeah, And that always helps.
0: There is no shame in that. No shame. Because seriously, the people who write those websites are probably some of the best science explainers on the planet. Yeah.
1: And they know how to really just...
0: Not dumb it down, because kids are smart, but, you know. That's funny. You flip-flopped on kids, apparently. You mean stupid kids? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You always said they were dumb until just now, so good for you, Chuck. We're all over the map. Well, I feel like we're really growing up these days. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so carbon-14, for those of you who don't know, is this um, really clever scientific method where you can actually kind of look inside of a material Mm -hmm. and figure out how much carbon-14 is in there. And by doing so, you can actually tell how old it is or at least how long ago it was since the thing you're dating was alive.
1: Yes. And it is a uh, comparative—well, there's another word for that. What's it called?
0: Relative dating?
1: Yeah, relative dating. Mm -hmm. I guess comparative isn't the worst word.
0: Right. Especially if you're talking about literature. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: Because what they're doing is comparing it to things that are alive today. Uh Uh-huh. And because of all the gobbledygook we're about to talk about, Mm -hmm. that equals a pretty good estimate. And then from there, there are even further things that one can do Mm -hmm. if one were so inclined as a scientist.
0: And there are a lot of people who are inclined to do this. This is a very exciting, um, energetic field Mm -hmm. of science right now. Like if you want to jump into an ever-evolving, constantly-moving B-A- um, field, the Barracus field, <laughs> kind of, um, of of science. Uh-huh. Start studying radiocarbon dating.
1: Yeah, actually, it wouldn't be a BA Barracus field because didn't that stand for bad attitude? Did it? I think so. Right? Oh, no one in radiocarbon
0: dating has a bad attitude. No, but
1: they are BAs. Right? Exactly. <laughs> but you're right. It does, it is ever evolving, and they're constantly looking for better ways to pinpoint more accurate uh, timelines on things. Right. So it's not like a job you're gonna get in and be like, oh, this old thing again.
0: Right, no. No. And it's it's just like they're constantly filling in blanks and stuff like that. It's yeah, just it's good work. It is. So um what they're looking for, the people who do radiocarbon dating, is carbon fourteen, which mm-hmm. I said. And that is radiocarbon. It's called that because it's a radioactive form of carbon. That's right. And it's everywhere on earth. It's just all over the place. It's part of the carbon cycle and it's part of the web of life. But it starts out way up in outer space as a cosmic ray. That's right. Should we give the the basis
1: definition before we jump to the ins uh, and outs of
0: radiocarbon dating? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, I
1: think like the most rudimentary definition okay. might help some people out. Um, but like you said, carbon fourteen is everywhere, including inside us, because mm-hmm. it's in plants via photosynthesis. Yeah. And we eat plants. Yeah. And animals eat plants. Yeah. Some people eat animals. Sure. And because of that, it's kind of in every living thing. Right. Uh, and carbon-14 dies away very slowly. hmm And because we know this and be, because we know it happens predictably. Right. Then we can measure that in a sample and then compare it, like I said, to something living. hmm And then you do a little math, ipso facto. hmm It's probably
0: an ipso facto, is it? I presto change Joe? Yeah, presto change <laughs> Bada bing, bada, bada bing, Bon Jovi? What was that? Bada bing, bada, bada boom, boom, Bon, bon Jovi. Jovi. Yeah. That was yours. Was it? Yeah. Oh, man. You came up with that on a carousel at Zoo Atlanta <laughs> in about 2012. <laughs> that's right.
1: That's where that's carbon dated to. <laughs> yeah. That, that joke. Yeah. Uh, but because we know that, we can compare it to something that's alive today, and then with a little math, we can figure out the a rough estimate of how old it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's radiocarbon dating in a nutshell for sure. That's right.
1: But like you said, it starts out as cosmic rays Mm -hmm. way out in outer space.
0: Right. And so a cosmic ray, we're not entirely certain where they come from, but they're super high energy particles, usually like pieces of atoms that are just shooting toward Earth and through outer space at incredible speeds. Yeah. And when they encounter the atmosphere, they start running into the atoms that make up the atmosphere. And because these particles are so high energy, these cosmic rays, when they smack into atoms and other particles and, and molecules and all that, they just burst them apart. Yeah. Not just burst like an atom into like its protons and neutrons, it'll tear apart a neutron like like it's nothing. <laughs> Actually creates other high energy particles like muons, uh pions, uh X rays, mm-hmm. um what else? Uh Zaxons. Is that right? <laughs> No, that was a video game. Was it? Zaxxon? Yeah.
1: Sure. It was with a good one. With a Z? Uh, yeah, I think it was Z-A-X-O-N, if I'm not I mistaken. I am not familiar
0: with that. It but was it an, an sounds, Atari. Oh, okay. It wasn't a stand-up game?
1: Oh, actually it may have been, but I played it on Atari.
0: Because I could see a kid in a Kiss t-shirt playing that game stand-up in an arcade. Yes, It sounds like that kind of game.
1: That would have been me had I not been deathly afraid of Kiss. Oh, <laughs> <I'll> bet. <laughs> because they were devil- Well, they were knights in Satan's (laughs) service, obviously. That's right.
0: Yeah. Okay, so all these muons, x-rays, pions, all that stuff, there's one other uh, little particle that can be created when a cosmic ray collides with an atom, and that is a neutron, a high-energy neutron, right? That's right. Okay. So what's happening now is a a chain reaction because cosmic rays are bombarding the atmosphere.
1: That's right. And uh, what can happen is they can get really pushy uh if a high energy neutron collides with let's say a nitrogen 14 atom yeah they'll get real pushy and they'll just knock the proton off and move right in there yeah. and say this is my house now
0: right so what was once a stable atom nitrogen 14 which had seven protons yeah. and seven neutrons seven each is now an unstable atom with six protons and eight neutrons and now it's no longer nitrogen 14 what you have fella is carbon fourteen?
1: Yes, and unstable meaning radioactive, mm-hmm. but not radioactive meaning like scary and dangerous.
0: No, it just means that it's it's in a higher energy state and it's temporary. Eventually, wants to decay back into that um, nitrogen fourteen state. And yes, eventually, and it, and it does that. Yeah, eventually, it's sometimes spontaneously, sometime down the road, that neutron will turn back into a proton, which sounds like magic until you realize that atoms and all of the particles that make up atoms are really just vibrations of energy, and it can temporarily go to a higher energy state or a lower energy state, and that is how something would change from, like, a high-energy neutron back to a, a proton.
1: Right, and you said that carbon-14 is everywhere, mm-hmm. which is true, but that doesn't mean there's, like, tons and tons of it relative to carbon 14, or wait, carbon 12. Yeah. There's a lot more carbon 12.
0: Right. So carbon 12 is the stable version of carbon. Yeah. And it's way more abundant than carbon 14. Carbon 14 is kind of like a freak, a monster Mm -hmm. that gets made accidentally. That's right. And is extremely rare, even though there's a ton of it. But compared to carbon 12, it's very rare. Something like one carbon 14 atom for every trillion uh, carbon atoms. That's, That's right. That's it's pretty rare, but it also gives us a ratio, Chuck, and this is a big initial point.
1: Yeah, and like you mentioned before, too, or maybe I said it, it's, uh, this is part of the carbon cycle. Mm-hmm. So it's inside all the plants, and the animals are eating the plants. We're eating plants. Right. Some people eat animals. Yeah. So it's inside all of us, and it's everywhere. Uh, but that ratio is really important because, like we said, it starts to decrease because it, it craves homeostasis mm-hmm. and wants to get back to its former life as a stable particle, right? Or as a atom. stable boy, stable boy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Could brush that horse. <laughs> and it would be it would be an atom because it's going from a carbon fourteen atom to a nitrogen fourteen atom,
1: right? But that ratio is important because as it's you know dies away, there are going to be fewer and fewer carbon fourteen atoms with that dead organism mm-hmm. over time. Mm-hmm. Whereas if something is alive, it has that steady amount, and that's where the comparison comes in,
0: right? Because as far as a plant or you or a dog or anything living Mm -hmm. is concerned, there's no difference whatsoever between a carbon-14 molecule of carbon dioxide and a carbon-12 molecule of carbon dioxide.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds hard to digest because we said it's radioactive, Uh but there really is no difference as far as we're concerned.
0: Right. Um, it basically takes a human scientist to analyze it using an extremely sophisticated machine to be able to tell the difference. That's right. So that means that when it does, you know, come down out of the atmosphere, it's spewed out by a volcano or something like that. Um, th- it just becomes part of the food chain like any other uh, atom of par- of carbon. Sure. That's locked in with oxygen to form carbon dioxide. So as you... You're living, like you were saying, you're constantly taking it in. You're constantly eating. It's just a part of life as carbon-14 and carbon-12, right? But when you die, you stop taking in carbon of all kinds. And all of a sudden, a clock is set because of that decay of carbon-14. That's right. And that decay, like we said, it happens spontaneously. An atom might suddenly convert from carbon-14 to nitrogen-14, you can't predict when that's going to happen right. because of the uncertainty that's part of quantum physics, right? But if you have a large enough sample, then you can start to predict when x number or x percentage of that that sample of carbon 14 will have spontaneously changed from carbon 14 to nitrogen 14 and that's called the half-life that which is everyone has heard of that's that's half-life that's just standard stuff
1: yeah i think everyone has heard of half-life and i bet 90 percent of the people that know that term don't really fully grasp it
0: well yeah it's just this the the amount of time it takes for half of the radioactive atoms in any given sample to convert back into a stable form yeah that's it it's
1: pretty easy Uh, And we know in this case the half-life, and we'll get to how we figured all this out, but the half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years. Mm -hmm. Um, If, you know, you keep going, it goes to a quarter life, then I guess an eighth?
0: Yeah, it just keeps going. So, so like, if you have 100 carbon-14 atoms, if you come visit it in 5,730 years, you're going to find you have 50 and if you visit it in another fifty seven hundred thirty years, you're going to have 25. Right. And then 12 and a half or 13 maybe. I don't know. And it yeah. just keeps going until there's a, ultimately none left over a long enough stretch of time, which is with carbon-14 like 50 or 60,000 years.
1: Yeah, I saw 60,000 mostly, mm-hmm. but then I think it start can get a little hinky at 50. Yeah. So 50 to 60 is pretty good.
0: And I think it gets hinky at this point because our – because of the equipment we're using to measure it. Oh, really? I think as our equipment gets more and more sensitive, mm-hmm. that time will go further and further out. Because as long as you have two atoms, you should still be yeah, able to I measure so. them, you know? Yeah, for sure. Or even one, probably. I'm not going to go out on <laughs> on a limb for that one, but someone, someone I'm going to I'm going to caveat that with the probably. Okay. Well,
1: let's take a little break here, and we're going to uh, come back here in a second and talk about uh, the very smart dude who figured all this stuff out quite a few years ago.
0: Listen to this it's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same day appointments. And if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24 7 virtual care.
1: Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful.
0: showcased site.
1: So just go to squarespace.com stuff and you're going to get a free trial and when you're ready to launch use our offer code stuff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.
0: All right Chuck just to recap real quick because so I think this This episode bears it, okay? Okay. You've got carbon-14. It's Mm -hmm. part of the food chain. You take it in as you're living. When you die, you stop taking it in. And so those carbon-14 atoms start to decay, which means that if you compare a dead organism to a living organism and the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 in the dead organism compared to the living organism, mm-hmm. you'd be able to tell how long ago the dead organism was alive and taking in more carbon. And that's the basis of radiocarbon dating.
1: That's right. So that is, uh, we have a man to thank from the University of Chicago mm-hmm. named Willard Libby.
0: That's a great name. I heard his name was uh, Wild Man or Wild Bill. Wild Man Willard Libby? Yeah. Because he's just crazy? I guess. He must have been a party <laughs> animal. Who knows? You don't get a nickname like Wild Bill. No, no. For nothing. They don't go around handing those out to just anybody. Yeah, not even just figuring out
1: carbon-14 dating. You wouldn't get a wild man for that.
0: No, no, no. Like even Chris Farley wasn't called Wild Bill. No. (laughs) I
1: think Willard Libby had a side side gig.
0: Yeah. You know? But he was the party monster.
1: (laughs) Maybe at the University of Chicago in the 1940s, perhaps. Yeah. So he figured out how carbon-14 worked and how it could be used to do this before we were even positive science even knew for a fact Mm -hmm. that there was such a thing as carbon-14.
0: That's pretty impressive.
1: Uh, And in fact, in 1946, it was just a few short years after we had discovered cosmic rays. So he was really... On the leading edge of science. Yeah. You know? He was a wild man. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: He's like, these particles, we're not even sure they exist. But if they do, we could figure out how to use them to right. date dead organisms.
1: And he won a Nobel Prize in 1960 for this. I think rightfully so. In uh, chemistry, yeah, for sure. Uh, even though, as we'll see, he got a few things wrong. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, and the one thing that's kind of tough to wrap your head around here is... He and this is, it, it just is what it is at this point. I think, but he selected 1950. <laughs> right, the year 1950 is year zero. Right, for his experimentation, mm-hmm. and he compared all the samples against this, and that is still what we do today. Right, that we didn't, we didn't revise a lot of this stuff. It's no, interesting.
0: No, like they definitely are. Like, okay, I think the reason why is because by the time it started started become s- sophisticated and and more refined. So many samples had gone through that yeah. it's like we're just going to stick just, with this <laughs> yeah, for now. Okay? 1950. Yeah, it's really interesting. So 1950, when you're radiocarbon dating an object, that is year zero. Yep. So um, anytime you get a date back, which we'll talk about, it's actually saying this is how long before 1950 this thing was last alive.
1: Right, and we're not talking. It just it doesn't have to be like a a plant fossil. Um, because we said carbon is in you know virtually everything, right? So a leather belt comes from a cow. Yeah. That cow ate the plant. Yeah. Um. What and else? Wooden plant wooden chips, ate, ate a pig. Fabric. Yeah. Oh, you. We find poop. Of course, old poop. Old, uh, old alcohol. Old beer. Yeah. Because of yeast. Right. There are many, many, many things. Obviously, bodies. Oatsy. Yeah. Our pal.
0: Yeah. As long as whatever you are. Dating was at one point alive, which means it wasn't a rock, right. or a mineral from birth. It, like it's, you can date it. You should be able to date it as long as it's f- about fifty or sixty thousand years or younger.
1: Yeah, but there was a problem early on in this process because you needed a lot of this material, yeah, uh, to basically destroy to find out how old it is, mm-hmm. and people didn't want to give up these great finds. Like, <laughs> they're, like I found a. Um, a skull. Right. And they're like, well, can we destroy that skull to find out how old it is? And, you know, they would turn around and say, no, it's my skull.
0: Right, right. <laughs> and then the radiocarbon researchers say, like, I was just asking to be pleasant. Give me that skull.
1: Yeah, but then you would say, No.
0: It's my skull,
1: and I'm just happy to call it old.
0: Right, and then Willard Libby would step in and just do like a the a, wild man. a pile driver <laughs> on the guy with the That's skull. That's why I got the name. Yep. He would just come in and crush people. <laughs> yeah, he'd be hiding maybe in another room in back yeah. or something and just pounce. Someone would go, ca <laughs> yeah, Yeah, <laughs> he would swarm.
1: Um, but here's the thing. We've gotten a lot better over time. The equipment has gotten a lot better, more sophisticated. So we don't need that much now, and people are giving up. Their fines because you can have a little gram of bone from the skull. Right. And uh, I think everything will be okay.
0: Yeah. And so because of that, like, it's gotten way more common to radiocarbon date stuff. I read in the U.K., um, they really started dating everything they found because the U.K. passed a law that said if you're a developer and you turn up any sort of archaeological evidence mm-hmm. on, like, one of your buildings or developments, you have to pay to have it dated. And so, like, it started to kind of get sh- the burden for paying for it was shifted to industry. Interesting. And so it started to really blow up. And that helped kind of push the technology along and helped lower the expense and increase the sophistication of the machines that were being used. Wow. Yeah. Pretty, pretty neat how that happens.
1: Well, here's what you got to do if you're going to start out this process is you got to really clean your sample very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, it's going to – it can mess up everything and not just the test that you're making. If you have what's called a hot sample, which means you didn't clean it well enough or it's contaminated.
0: A gram of hot sample.
1: <laughs> you can destroy a lab basically – To the point where they'll just have to shut down for for weeks or even months to get everything right. And everything in there might be destroyed. Like, yeah. All the other samples that may be super valuable. Mm -hmm.
0: My skull. Yeah. You know? Sorry. Um, So it's a big deal if something isn't cleaned right because it really throws everything off and can ruin everything else. But once you do have it cleaned, um, when you date it, there's a few different methods that you can use. But the one that I saw is the most common is actually turning that – carbon-based sample Mm -hmm. into carbon, graphite, like pure carbon. And then you take that little piece of pure carbon that Mm -hmm. you've just created and you shoot a beam of energy through it.
1: A lot of energy. Yeah. Like 2 million volts.
0: Yeah, which is a lot. Not all at once.
1: I think they ramp it up, don't they?
0: Yeah, over time. But at some point, it's it's, it's been uh, accelerated to 2 million volts of energy. Right. Okay, and then so once you have this thing, basically a particle a mini particle accelerator, it's passed through a spectrometer which can actually measure the different masses of the atoms in this beam that you've shot through the graphite.
1: That's right. It's detecting the little bits of carbon.
0: Yeah, that's pretty impressive stuff. Yeah. I mean this is the kind this is the level of technology we're at right now in two thousand nineteen and this has been around since like the eighties or nineties. Yeah. Just think of what's coming next. What did they use before the spectrometer? They used like something called
1: 50 and 80.
0: beta counting. And it was clunky and expensive and not nearly as reliable. Yeah. But basically what it did was something different where it would sit there and, and study a piece of graphite or gas. They, they often gasify stuff too, mm-hmm. pure gas. And then it would just like shoot a beam through it and study. I think a beam. It would somehow study the sample. Mm-hmm. For days, maybe, and it would count the number of atoms that had spontaneously converted from carbon fourteen to carbon twelve, wow. and then it would do a little mathematic rigmarole and say, <laughs> "This is how. This is how. At this rate of decay, this is how old this organism is."
1: Well, thank goodness we have the spectrometer now. Then, yeah, because it's much more precise and it sounds and faster. It
0: sounds more futuristic too.
1: Yeah, mass spectrometers. Yeah. So you're gonna shoot this beam. You're going to throw it in the wonder machine. Actually, not the wonder machine. We've already taken that from something <laughs> <be> like,
0: else. <laughs> yep, it's a thoughtless piece of graphite. Uh,
1: and then you compare that ratio to the, again, year zero, which is the ratio in 1950, mm-hmm. which is still a little confusing. I oh, know. yeah, it's clunky. It is very clunky. And then that difference, uh, basically, like we've said eight times now, mm-hmm. uh, shows how many years have passed to produce the amount of decay right. in that sample.
0: right. So if you took like a sample of wood from an old ship, an old boat you found out, right, route? Right? That's the new right, by the way. Did you say route? Yeah. Okay. Um, and you analyze it and you found that based on the amount of carbon-14 in there, it was something like, um, it dated to like 845 BCE. Okay. Okay. You'd be like, great, now we know where this ship is from. But if you tried to go out and publish a study with that, hopefully your radiocarbon colleagues would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah. There's a few more steps involved here. You're new here. (laughs) And that's like the most (laughs) precise radiocarbon date anyone would have ever given. You'll be laughed out of the field if you do this. Yes, don't do that. Instead, there's a couple of things that you have to do first. So radiocarbon dates are given uh, as a span of time. Sure, a bit of a range. Right. So it'll say, and also because it's Comparing to 1950, it's given not as a date like BCE or AD or CE or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's BP, before present, years before present. That's right. So for that piece of wood, say you would actually get something like 2715 years before present, plus or minus 30 years.
1: So is it always 30, or is it?
0: No, no. It can. It can depend. It can. It can. Uh, range dramatically right like Utsi is there they have them down to about 300 or 350 years okay and you like the the shorter the span of time mm. the plus or minus years mm. or the the window of years that you get um the less confidence you have so maybe you'll have like 26 confidence that it's from you know uh 845 BCE to 855 BCE. Right. But you have 95% confidence that there's like a, the, this 200-year span. It's somewhere in there.
1: That makes sense because I have a million percent confidence that it's somewhere within the last 18 million years. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
0: right? So sure. it just keeps... The larger the window, the more confident you are. Yeah. But I mean, still, you're talking 100, 200 years depending on how old the sample is, how good the sample is. Yes. So it's still pretty... It's pretty... Um, they can zero it in pretty well, and that science's
1: job is to not say, "Well, let's just make a really big range, right?" And that'll be good enough, right? They want to zero in as much as possible, mm-hmm. like you know that's and still
0: be accurate, right? So the thing is, though, is if you do the if you do the math and you say, "Well, wait a on minute," on your example, yeah, yeah, twenty seven hundred and fifteen years before present, plus or minus thirty years, gives you a range of between seven hundred and twenty six and six sixty six BCE. But that's not even close to what you said. Yeah, which was 845 before, right? That's right. Yeah. So why wouldn't 845 be in the sample, Chuck? Well,
1: because uh, like we said in the very first sentence, radiocarbon dating is uh, not super – I mean, it's accurate Mm -hmm. on a wide range, but it's a little clunky.
0: It is. Part of it is because there's actual – Problems like known problems built in right. to the actual process of radiocarbon dating and the results that they get back. Should we I'll take that, break? I'll bet that pause I just had yeah. sounded really <laughs> long in the replay. <laughs> Probably so. Felt like it. But,
1: yeah, let's take a break, man. All right. We'll come right back and talk about more science right after
0: this. Listen to this. It's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same day appointments, and if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24 7 virtual care.
1: Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful. Hey, everybody, summer is the perfect time for gathering with friends and family in the backyard to enjoy premium cuts of meat, fresh seasonal produce, and more. And of course, we're talking about Whole Foods Market.
0: And speaking of that meat, you can fire up the grill with premium cuts of meat like no antibiotics ever beef New York strip steak and beautifully marbled boneless beef ribeye steak. Your grill will thank you.
1: And you can also grab and go. Whole Foods Market has grab and go favorites like packaged salads, appetizers, and sides. They're really perfect for bringing to any kind of potluck barbecue.
0: Yes, plus don't forget dessert. Every gathering needs dessert. You can dig into limited time seasonal pies from their experts in the bakery.
1: Or how about some adult beverages you can always fill up that cooler with some summer beers, seltzers, sparkling wine, canned wines and more. Must be 21 plus of course and please drink responsibly.
0: So make Whole Foods Market your summer grilling destination.
1: So I thought this was uh, was this from How Stuff Works? And you, in your brain?
0: and Yeah, and a bunch of other places too, sure. Right. And you, in your brain? Sure. Okay.
1: <laughs> but there, there's an interesting uh, thing to note here, which is science makes a lot of assumptions mm-hmm. when it comes to dating stuff. All right. Uh, and this is the best way to say it. If you find, like, if they find, like, a leather shield that they dig out of a, of a archaeological site, mm-hmm. they get super excited, and they can date the shield, and they can say or they probably will say well whoever this heroic uh, person was in the battlefield mm-hmm. died on this around this date because that's where the shield is dated from right but that not, is not necessarily true because they're dating the shield mm-hmm. from the the cow skin mm-hmm. that's on the handle let's say mm-hmm. and that just says when that cow was alive last right has nothing to do with when this person made the shield mm-hmm. how long that leather had been around right before they went out onto the battlefield and took an arrow to the forehead.
0: Yeah, maybe they were like super into vintage leather to use on their shield handle. <laughs> sure, yeah? Yeah. It's, it's It sounds ridiculous, but it's totally possible. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, is archaeology uh, is based on making assumptions and presumptions based on the context. Right. And it's like, this is totally fine. This is widely accepted. This is not new or scandalous at all. But like, that is part of archaeology's job is to say, here's the context of this find. Right. And based on this radiocarbon date of this, it's a pretty good guess that they killed the cow, made the leather, mm-hmm. made the shield, and then the guy died probably within it. A- 10, 15-year window. Sure. Unless,
1: I mean, the idea, it would be an even weirder assumption to think that it was an ancient hipster who collected old old leathers.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Check out my new... (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, And then the other part of it, too, is they also use it to compare to other stuff. Like if they're in a pit filled with other um, soldiers of a certain, you know, from a certain nation or Mm -hmm. clan or whatever... um, and they knew of a lost grave. They may have found that if it right. kind of roughly correlates to the date they were thinking. Like there's a lot of a lot of stuff that they put together. They don't just say, here's what the radiocarbon date says. So this is what it is. That's right.
1: So because science does this, Libby was certainly doing this. The wild man was doing this. <laughs> and he was making assumptions. And he was, and hey, we're not knocking the guy because you no. won a Nobel Prize for this. Yeah. But he assumed a couple of things that were not correct, Uh, one of which was he got the half-life wrong. Yeah. Uh, He said the half-life of carbon-14 was 5,568 years. So close. We actually know it's 5730, like we said. Not that close. And he also presumed uh, that carbon-14 in the atmosphere uh, is very steady Mm -hmm. over time, and it's something we can really depend on. Being like there being a certain amount, yeah, like and the, that's not really the case either.
0: No, it's not. And that second one's a big one. Like the first one, you can just mess around with some math and be like, "Oh, okay. Well, this is the actual half life."
1: Well, but it's interesting. That's what we've had to do because that's another thing we didn't go back mm-hmm. and change, because it was all done on the basis of fifty-five, sixty-eight.
0: Right, right. So the initial stuff, uh, the initial dates that were done when Libby invented it were based on a half life of fifty five hundred and sixty eight from nineteen fifty. Right, <laughs> from, but from uh, uh, I don't I don't know exactly when they figured it out. But at some point in the ensuing decades, they figured out no, the half life is actually fifty seven thirty, and rather than just go back and re, re um uh, analyze the old samples, which actually may have been destroyed by this time. Right? Uh, they said, we're just going to stick with this convention and, and follow it. And we could just do the math and just say, actually, this is the real half-life, convert it to the Libby half-life, and then have right. a radiocarbon date.
1: Yeah, but the other thing he got wrong, like you said, is, is the bigger problem, because it can't just be solved with math. And that is his presumption that uh, carbon-14 in the upper atmosphere... Uh, is produced at a steady rate. Mm-hmm. We know now that there are all kinds of things right. that can and have affected that rate over the years. Everything from ocean currents to super volcanoes mm-hmm. to solar flares mm-hmm. to the Earth's magnetic field. Mm-hmm. It has fluctuated a lot over time.
0: Yeah, but I mean, from year to year, yeah. we're starting to find that it's not at all steady. And that's a big one because one of the foundations of radiocarbon dating is this idea that that it's like a reliable clock that just starts clicking backwards, right. you know? Mm-hmm. At any point in time, whatever year you come in on, you're going to be able to compare it to a modern sample and get a coherent um, uh, radiocarbon date that right. will make sense. That's just absolutely not the case because of all of those fluctuations. Right. That's, that's something that this field is definitely grappling with, which... Uh, it will it will be able to overcome and largely has already because they use other types of dating to calibrate their radiocarbon dates
1: yeah, which is really cool. We were talking about the um relative dating of carbon fourteen dating mm-hmm. what they 're now trying to do well not now they 've been doing it for a while is uh absolute dating like what you 're talking about, comparing it to known quantities uh and one of those is tree rings. Yeah. And I'm surprised we've talked about tree rings a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if it could be a shorty on its own. Sure.
0: At least. Yeah. Maybe more. We'll just start rapping on it and whether if it turns <laughs> into a, a real deal episode, we'll go with yeah, it. Yeah, we'll just cancel our
1: dinner plans and <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh tree ring uh dating is called dendrochronology, Counting tree rings. Mm-hmm. And not all trees have tree rings. We'll get to that, which can be a problem. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them do, and some of them grow every year, just like you've learned and everyone probably thinks is true from, like, kid science class. Right. It's like once a year, a tree has a ring. So if you cut a tree down, you can just count the rings and know how old it is.
0: Which is, I mean, basically right, depending on the tree. At exactly.
1: But here's the thing is uh, trees absorb that carbon-14, just like everything else, mm-hmm. but those tree rings don't. Once they have completed a tree ring cycle. Mm -hmm. That tree ring is essentially dead inside the tree Mm -hmm. and is not accepting any more carbon-14.
0: Yeah, it's like a fossil. It's like if you look at the outside of a tree, that's the living part. Like as big as a tree is and Mm -hmm. enormous as it is, the actual living part of it is just this outside veneer and like the leaves and everything, right? Yeah, I guess so. Everything inside is what used to be outside but is now inside. That's right. Because a new ring of growth grew around it. So um, since it's not taking in any more carbon, it's like a snapshot mm-hmm. of the carbon-14 that was in the atmosphere the year that tree ring grew.
1: Yes, and we know this. And now we have something to compare against those carbon-14 data results.
0: Yeah, because if you chop the uh, tree down today, you would say, thank you, father tree, mother tree. Um, for sacrificing your life for, for science. Mm-hmm. That's what you have to say first. Right. Um, and you start counting the tree rings backwards. If you get to another tree that's much older, mm-hmm. but that lived uh, – or that uh, the lifetime of which overlapped with the tree you just cut down, yeah, you can eventually jump over from the tree you just cut down to this older tree yeah. and keep counting backwards. And then just keep – if you find enough old trees, keep leaping from tree to tree – counting tree rings as if it was one big old tree. That's really cool. It is. And there are very, very old trees that do exist on Earth that you can count backwards from over very long spans of time. But you can also use multiple trees.
1: Yeah, and, like, if you're sitting at home or in your car thinking, well, why don't they just find the oldest tree and go there? Mm -hmm. Like, you want that overlap because you want a complete record. Right. Because stuff you're dating might fall, you know, in that they, they need everything to fall in that
0: range. Right. And so this has been extremely helpful for radiocarbon dating because they have managed to compile basically a library of tree ring data Mm -hmm. um, going back like 14,500 years. It's amazing. It's called the Holocene tree record. And it's one of the – I didn't even know it existed. Now I'm just – I love it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I want to – I, like, want a, a bound copy of it just right. for the coffee table or something, you know? And, and
1: lay in a hammock in the middle of Pando.
0: <laughs> and read it. And read it. <laughs> and be like, oh, look meta. at this year, Pando. What do you think? <laughs> what happened this year? And Pando would hug you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was trying to
1: think of something you would do back to Pando, but...
0: I I would go <laughs> blow on
1: Pando's leaves.
0: I bet that feels good. Sure.
1: So, there are other places in nature that have these same kind of snapshots, uh, if you wanted more than, because you need more, just than the Holocene tree record. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can use coral reef, because there's clearly carbon in the ocean. Yeah. Um, Stalactites and stalagmites, Mm -hmm. which are called speleothems. If anyone ever busts that out at a party, you'll know what they're talking about. Just back away slowly. (laughs) Yeah, you probably should. Because everyone else is just going to be talking about, I can never
0: remember which ones are (laughs) which. Exactly. Oh, you mean speleothems? <laughs> yeah, just Let me educate you. Goodbye.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, they are made of carbon, and they are deposited in layers, uh, just like the tree rings and the coral. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, they have found some in China kind of recently that go back 54,000 years.
0: Yeah, I think they really recently found this, so much so that it hasn't been like fully vetted, but they no were really. super excited about it, That the idea that it gave a basically a long, mineral-rich tree ring library of 54,000 years of the carbon-14 concentrations in the atmosphere. That's awesome. If if it does pan out, that would be amazing.
1: And what's the deal with the lake in Japan? It uh, reliably puts down a new layer of sediment every six months. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. And so they've taken core samples, and in these core samples, they've turned up like leaves trapped in single layers Mm -hmm. in something like 650 different spots. So all they have to do is count backwards, find, you know, the—and they'll know the year that this um, leaf is uh, trapped in. It's the like sediment, the tree rings. And then test the carbon-14 in the leaf, and you've got like a picture right there.
1: And that is called what we'll call a library mm-hmm. of atmospheric carbon-14 concentrations.
0: Yeah. The it whole, should have a name. It, it does. It's called IntCal. Okay. I-N-T-C-A-R. And um, there's different programs that you can run all this through. Like I, before, back in the 40s and 50s, like they were, I guess, using slide rules and stuff like this yeah. to to come up with these. Now we have basically machine learning algorithms running these, right. these computations for us. But um, they have programs that use this calibration library to basically say, Here's the, what the radiocarbon data is saying. What does this library of absolute dates say? Yeah. And then what they do is they actually, well, the computer, I should say, uh, overlaps what's called the wiggles. And they hold it up to the light. Yeah. <laughs> and they find, like, where these kind of wiggles overlap, which are um, uh, confidence intervals, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and where it's most confident that you have a, a pretty good idea of what the range is for the age of this sample.
1: And that means we know exactly how old everything is, always, right?
0: I mean, precisely to the day.
1: <laughs> that is not true, no. because all the things we just mentioned the speleothems, uh, <laughs> the coral, everything has its own individual problems. Right? Um, coral, it turns out, isn't a great material for calibrating uh, this stuff because ocean concentrations of carbon are not the same as in the atmosphere. Right. So that kind of throws it off right there.
0: It does. So if you're comparing like a, something that lived on land to coral in the library, in, the, in Cal library, yeah, it's not going to calibrate very well. Um, tree rings are a problem too because they figured out that depending on the hemisphere that the tree grew in, mm-hmm. it will give you a different atmospheric concentration. Because the southern atmosphere has more oceans and those oceans absorb more carbon dioxide. So there's actually less – carbon-14 on land in the Southern Hemisphere than there is in the Northern Hemisphere. So if you checked out a waterlogged oak that grew in Ireland in 1082 CE, uh-huh. if you found a coyote tree... A what? A, a coyote <laughs> okay. tree in New Zealand that grew that same year, they would have different radiocarbon dates. Right. Because they have different carbon, radiocarbon concentrations... So it's just, there's a lot of things confounding this stuff that's keeping it from being less pre- or precise.
1: That's right. And it gets even worse because there have been long stretches of time on Earth in our history where carbon-14 production really increased every year mm-hmm. over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years or uh, tens of thousands.
0: Yeah. Well, there's stretches. That, so all over the radiocarbon calendar. Yeah. Yeah. There are these things called plateaus, and I think the longest that they've ever found is a few hundred years. when I said tens of thousands. Yeah, it was that a was little a off. Just like a radiocarbon date. Um, All right. I don't feel so bad. They found this thing called the Hallstatt Plateau. More like the Hallstatt Disaster. Yeah, that's what some people call it. <laughs> Am I right? I'm sure that's what Willard Libby called it. Sure. But basically, there were periods during Earth's history. This one in particular goes from 760 to 420 BCE, where... The the production of carbon fourteen in the atmosphere just increased basically steady, steadily every year. Mm-hmm. So nothing ever got older relative to new stuff, right? Which means that if you radiocarbon date something at the in seven hundred and sixty BCE and something in four hundred and twenty BCE, they're going to give you the same exact radiocarbon date. Four hundred and twenty, huh? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 420. That was your response? 420,
1: huh? Hey, there's people out there thinking it.
0: To the Hallstatt disaster. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Willard (laughs) Libby would be proud. He was the wild
1: man. Yeah. So this is, while this is important, it's not just to put a date on something so we know how old it is Mm -hmm. and we can just put it down in a museum or a history book or whatever. Right. Um, It really opens up all of science and all of Uh, ancient history to interpretation and kind of rocked the world about a lot of things that we thought were true that aren't true.
0: Yeah, they call it the radiocarbon revolution, and like for good reason, really, yeah.
1: Well, one good example is uh, in the UK there, we talked about Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. They used to think that Stonehenge was uh, the result of the, uh, how do you pronounce that?
0: Mycenae? Mycenae? I don't know. Mycenae? You'd think I'd know. Mycenae. I think it's the Mycenae civilization in Greece. But the A and the E on the end, it's got to do something more than, like, why not just add a Y instead of an E? Hey, I'm with you. And, you know, sometimes (laughs) you see the A and the E together conjoined. Sure. Like uh, Ronnie and Donnie Galleon. (laughs) Right. You know? Wow. So what is that? I don't know. It's its own thing.
1: (laughs) So we used to think that it came from an ancient uh, Greek civilization, but because <laughs> of radiocarbon dating, they said, no, 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 no. This is uh, – we had the age all wrong, mm-hmm. and Stonehenge came before that ever happened, before the civilization was even there. Right. So it really helps clear up a picture of everything from Otsi the Iceman to knowing uh, that the Shroud of Turin was only 700 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it can confirm things. And it can quash other things,
0: right? And then, and, and the way that they used to do it before was they would just kind of dig in the earth and turn up artifacts. And because an artifact was closer to the ground, right, than another one, yeah. it just meant it was more recent. That's like as precise as they could get. Radiocarbon yeah. was like, not only are we going to do away with that, but get this, pal. Here's a a date and a pretty good estimate of a date that this thing existed. That's how much it changed things. They used to be like, this is older than this. Now it's this, Utsi the Iceman was running around, you know, in 3300 BCE. Right. And in doing that, it also changes everything in that they're saying, oh, well, Utsi was also found with tattoos on him that seemed to suggest acupuncture, which apparently they didn't think anymore. But, but that, changed our idea of how old acupuncture was. right? And then he had certain tools on him. We didn't know that they were making these tools back then, but now that we've reliably dated Utsi, Mm -hmm. we know that this... This tool-making complex is much older. People had professions much sooner than we thought. Yes. It just opens up everything when you have a date for one thing. Yeah, the tendrils are far-reaching. Right, exactly. And broad. Uh, And it happened, actually, here in the United States, too, or in North America. You know, we did a whole episode on the Clovis police. Oh,
1: sure, the Clovis.
0: The idea that the Clovis people were the first Americans, Mm -hmm. and they came over from— uh, crossing over the, uh, I guess, the Bering Land Bridge right. when the ice sheet receded. And so Willard Libby did uh, a a test that showed there's no way that the ice sheet was open anywhere before 12,000 to fi- 15,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So he actually set a baseline. This is when the earliest people possibly could have been here. Well, we've been finding and radiocarbon dating settlements that are older than that. They found one in Idaho on the Snake River. I can't remember the name of the island. Um, that's like almost 16,000 years old. And it shows definitively that since the ice sheet was there, they couldn't have come over on the Bering Land Bridge. So now we think the first Americans came over by boat. That's right. All because of radiocarbon dating.
1: Amazing. But we're screwing it all up <laughs> yeah. for the future because uh, of human activity. Um, that, you know, we're burning a lot of fossil fuels and we are releasing a lot of carbon into the atmosphere mm-hmm. and so much so that 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 consistent uh previously reliable ratio of carbon 12 to carbon 14 has been knocked all out of whack because okay. of us and in the next what uh 30 years yeah 30 to 40 years uh, we may not be able to date things accurately using this method anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, because when you know when they say, "Well, you burn fossil fuels, you release a lot of carbon dioxide." Well, those fuels used to be alive, so they used to have carbon fourteen in them. But they're so old, there isn't any carbon fourteen now. It's all just carbon twelve, and we're releasing tons of carbon twelve into the atmosphere that wouldn't normally be there.
1: That's right, and uh, nuclear tests that we conducted um, had a big, actually, had the opposite effect. Between 1955 and 1963, the com- uh, concentration of carbon-14 in the atmosphere doubled, almost doubled.
0: Yeah. So, there's so it's all, all screwy now. It is a very screwy, so much so that now they have modern samples. They have a beet harvest from the 70s that they used to replace a beet from France from 1950 that they used to be like, this is the baseline now for yeah. modern. This is what we're reduced to is sampling beets for God's sake. That's how much it screwed <laughs> things up. I love beats. but they have figured out how to um, use this kind of modern screwiness to also date um, recent remains, which everyone thought was just impossible—that um, you couldn't you couldn't tell when a body lived or died if it were just a you know a decade or so right. dead or less.
1: But we have historical records for all this stuff. I know it's a big deal, but like, mm-hmm. and we're screwing stuff up to the future, but. Isn't the, the utility of carbon-14 dating because it was pre-history?
0: Yeah, that, that certainly helps. And, yeah, I guess you're right. The the Having a record would definitely help quite a bit.
1: And I'm not, you know, saying, like, who cares then? Right. But at least we have that going for us.
0: Yeah, that is a good point. It'd be like, well, the leather seat from this automobile is the <laughs> same age as this leather shoe from 3,000 years before, which is which. Right. Um, but, yeah, they have figured out how to, how to uh, use it for forensics based on your teeth enamel, which are like tree rings, and then based on your soft tissues. But your soft tissues degrade, so they figured out that they can actually test the um, casings from the larva that eat your soft tissues as you're decomposing.
1: So the soft tissue is the carbon-14 in this scenario?
0: Yeah, which you're constantly remaking, and then as you die, it gets, it stops being um, taken in and then starts decaying. And as you're being eaten by these you know, bug larvae, yeah. they shed their casings, and the casings don't degrade. So you can come along and test the casings, and they ate your carbon-14. And you can figure out when that person, that body last lived, based on the casings of the bugs that ate it.
1: And in a million years, if I were not to get cremated and they were to bury me into the ground, Mm -hmm. the only thing that would remain of me are the three titanium screws holding in my three fake teeth.
0: That's neat. A million years. Who'd have thought?
1: Yep. There he is. (laughs) Yeah. There's Chuck. One, two, three. You got anything else? There may be more than that by then, too. Right. There might be four or five.
0: So, anything else? You want to keep going? We
1: can keep talking about this. I have no dinner plans.
0: Okay. Um, Well... I think we're going to stop with Carbon-14. We don't want to press our luck. It did go pretty well, Chuck, I told you. I think so. Uh, And since I said it went pretty well, it's time for Listener Mail.
1: All right. I was preparing for the next episode. Yeah,
0: we got Listener Mail first. Look at me.
1: All right, I'm going to call this uh, soup follow-up. If you remember, we talked about canned soup in a previous episode on... What else? Augmented reality.
0: (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) I think we were pegged as uh, Progresso guys because you you spoke up first. Yeah. With a name brand.
0: Right. I'm a Campbell's man. Uh, Hey, I don't discriminate. I like Campbell's Chunky, too. I just kind of went
1: along with it. I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. Okay. I didn't speak up. Mm -hmm. But this is about that. Uh, Hey, guys, there are no words to describe how much I enjoy your podcast. I've listened to every single episode and continue to do so. Each and every week, thank you for bringing wonderful science exploration for knowledge and laughs to my days.
0: So far, so good.
1: I listened to the latest episode on augmented reality while on a plane to Boston, and I could not stop laughing when you got to a full-on tangent about canned soup. I thought, this is my moment. This is my chance to ride in. I've been too starstruck before, but here we go. I know canned soup all too well. I spent seven years right out of college working for General Mills, Yes, they make the cereal, uh, but they also own Progresso. I worked in sales managing our businesses with our East Coast and national accounts. Three years ago, I left General Mills and went to work for Campbell's Soup.
0: Oh, it's like Adidas (laughs) and Puma over here. I guess
1: so. Uh, Just outside of Philadelphia, I guess you could say I too have a thing for canned soup. I currently manage our uh, soup and prego business at one of our largest East Coast grocery chains. And although it doesn't seem complicated... I can tell you a lot of work goes into you enjoying your can of red and white chicken noodle soup. I still love that. (laughs) Campbell's
0: chicken noodle. Oh, yeah. So good. It's like, how do you mess with a classic like that? Uh, But but there's also Progresso creamy (laughs) chicken noodle, which is the bomb. When you mentioned this
1: episode brought to you by Progresso as a joke, I, I was just waiting for you to plug that. You liked Campbell's as well and even more. Ha ha. Either way, I'm just glad you both enjoy eating our soups. I'd be happy to give you a tour of Campbell's Soup HQ oh. if you're ever in Philly. Uh, thanks to the entire team for all you do. You guys are a legend. <laughs> Combined <on. laughs> into a singular. That's from Kathleen. And Kathleen, uh, no shade to Progresso, but I'm a Campbell's man. I eat three soups. A day? No. <laughs> I eat Campbell's chicken noodle. Uh-huh. I eat chicken corn chowder.
0: I don't know if I've had that. That's so good. Is and, it? and I eat their uh, New England clam chowder. Yeah, that's good. Who, who eats Manhattan clam chowder? I don't know. Or I'm sorry, Manahatta clam chowder. <laughs> no one, not even Manhattan nights. Yeah. They're <laughs> like, get this away. Give me the real stuff. Yeah, give me that creamy goodness. Do you ever have um, meatball alphabet? No. Oh, I don't know why we're in those meatballs, but I grew up on them. And look at me now. I know. They're That's good. all the soups I eat, though. It's weird. I have three soups. Yeah. You don't do the chunky stuff. Campbell's chunky. I mean, they come in large cans. It's like a hungry man. Well, version that, that's of,
1: the uh, the chicken corn chowder and the.
0: I have had that and it's good.
1: Those are chunky. Have you ever had the chicken pot pie? No, but it's, I just made a homemade gluten free chicken pot pie, biscuit topped.
0: Well, how do you make a biscuit without gluten?
1: You you make it with one to one flour. huh. Instead of wheat flour.
0: What kind of flour is not wheat flour? What?
1: Is like the white flour, bleached flour. <laughs> Have you never flour? heard of Is gluten-free that... pasta?
0: And... No. I mean, yes. I've heard of
1: it. I haven't eaten it. It's just made with uh, flour without gluten. It's called one-to-one as in the ratio. Oh, oh I see. I got gotcha. So basically you buy the gluten-free flour. Sometimes right. it's rice flour. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, tapioca, but... Have you had chickpea flour? I don't think so. It's not bad. I mean, I'm not gluten-free. I did this so Emily could enjoy chicken pot pie. Sure. But, you know, you lay out, you make the little chicken bis- the little biscuits. Mm-hmm. And you lay them on top of your pot pie.
0: Oh, that sounds nice.
1: And then you brush it with uh, egg yolk. Nice. And then it bronzes up to a shiny brown top. Yeah,
0: like people laying on the beach in Rio. It's so good. That is nice, man. Yeah, make a good ch- uh, chicken pot pie. Have you had it already? But I had, is it like at home Yeah, I had landing? it this
1: past weekend. Nice. But I have not had the soup, which is what led me to that tangent.
0: It's good. I won't. I don't discriminate. Progresso Campbell's, it's all good. Well, Chuck is checking his phone to see what time it is, so I guess we should probably end (laughs) this episode. If you want to get in touch with us to offer us a tour of where you work, that's always nice. Thank you. Um, You can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com, check out our social links, or you can send us an email to stuffpodcasts at iheartradio.com. Stuff You
1: Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey friends, when someone says Amazon, do you think healthcare? Well, maybe you should. Amazon One Medical offers same day appointments. And if somehow that's still not convenient enough, they have 24 seven virtual care. Not only that, there's also Amazon Pharmacy. So after your virtual care appointment, Amazon will deliver your prescriptions directly to your door. Now waiting in line with people who are sick with who knows what. It's a new era of healthcare. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful.